Welcome to the WanderLearn podcast. This is Francis Tafon, and in this interview, I will be talking with Ralph Potts, a complete hero of mine because he wrote Vagabonding, a seminal book in travel literature. I talk right off the bat about getting drunk when he was five years old, and we kind of trade childhood drunk stories between him. I ask him about when he got into hiking and rock climbing. What does he do when he's traveling in order to kind of stay in shape? I also talk about his new book, which is about souvenirs and how does he go about buying souvenirs? What does he do? And how do people look at souvenirs versus photography? We really dive a lot into the whole souvenir topic. And also, I ask him about actually writing. Does it pay better to write books or articles? Things like that. So the whole craft of writing and being a travel writer. He's a fascinating guy. Tune in. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to the WanderLearn podcast. I'm Francis Taffan. I'm here with Rolf Potts. He is one of my heroes, uh, the guy who has set the standard by writing the book about vagabonding. Thank you so much, Rolf, for joining us. Happy to be talking to you from the other side of the world. Yes, that's right. And by the way, I'm in Cameroon right now. Rolf, where are you? You're not in Kansas, are you? Uh, I'm in New York City. Okay, almost like Kansas. It's American. So you have reliable power. I have not had power for eight hours this day uh, since I woke up, and so I'm running on battery power. So if this interview just cuts off short, you'll know why. All right, we're racing. We're racing the batteries. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you and I have three things in common, Rolf. Uh, first of all, we were both born in 1970. Second of all, we're both travel writers, and third of all, we're both incredibly good-looking, and and of course, right? Yeah, that's uh, sensational. Sensationally good-looking. But Nailed it. Nailed it, Francis. <laughs> but the third, the third thing, actually, is that we both got drunk at a young age. Um, I'll tell you my story later, but why don't you share when you were five years old getting drunk on beer? Yeah, well, it, it, I don't even think it occurred to me when I was five that I was getting drunk. I was just, I was hanging out with my cousin Clint as people do with their cousins. The adults were upstairs. I was at his parents' house. And um, there was a fridge full of beer and pop. We call uh, soda pop in the Midwest. Uh, this was in suburban Kansas City. And, uh, you know, Clint just said, hey, Rolf, you want a beer? And I'm here, sure. And so we just sort of were playing make-believe uh, make grown-up. And I think we both just thought beer was a, an adult variation of pop. And we started drinking it, and it, and it tasted terrible, honestly tasted terrible. And, but you kept um, drinking anyway. I had been taught... Yeah, because I'd been taught to finish what I started. I, I mean, that was just sort of sort of like that motherly advice to finish your Brussels sprouts applied to this pop-looking can of beer, and I had no idea. In fact, it was years later before I realized what beer would actually do to you. And so, um, actually, uh, my cousin said, oh, this is terrible. I think I need a straw. So he went up, and he got a straw, and he was drinking the straw, and that didn't help. And I was just slowly sl sipping away on my beer, and then he's here. I'm... Um, I'm going to get some salt. Maybe that'll help it <laughs> taste better. And so I went upstairs to get some salt and said, and his mom was like, well, why do you need salt? And it's like, well, Rolf and I are drinking beers. And so that, that, that shut it down. But by the time, I don't even think the adults realized it, but by the time Clint had, uh, had uh, exposed us, uh, I was done with my beer. And so um, shortly thereafter, the kids downstairs, we had a pillow fight. And I think I was a little, little bit loopy because I fell over and hit my head on the corner of a coffee table. And had to get stitches, and so uh, it wasn't until years later that I realized what that you know that beer can impair you that I put two and two together and realized that this 
this strange little beer drinking contest had led to my first incident with stitches. So did I beat you? Um, did, did you drink? I think you did because you got the stitches. So you definitely, cause I, my, my story was my mom was having a dinner party and she had a bunch of strawberries that she had cut up and put in a bowl and she had coated it with some sort of liquor, like rum or something like that. And my, my friend and I, I think I was a bit older than you were. I wasn't five. I think I was been seven or eight. And of course we were hungry. And then while she wasn't looking, we went and raided the refrigerator and we saw all these strawberries and he's like, Oh, yummy. They tasted a bit funny. They're kind of strange tasting, but we said, screw it. They're strawberries. We kept eating and eating and eating. Cause of course we had such small bodies that we eventually got completely drunk and we were falling over just like you were falling over, but not, well, at least we fell over on carpet. And so I think we, we, we didn't cause so much damage to ourselves. It's funny. Yeah. When you're a kid, I don't think you need to have, uh, intoxicants, you know, you're already sort of, um, happy-go-lucky through the world. So um, did you know at the time that that was happening or were you, did you put two and two together with the, with the rum strawberries? I guess it must have hit me later, but I just remember looking at my friend. And the funny thing here, Rolf, is that I had such vivid memories of it. I still remember it so clearly. I remember looking at my friend and bursting out laughter, you know, just by looking at each other. We thought everything was so hilarious that you would think that I would become an alcoholic. And here's what's strange. I have never since then drunken alcohol, except for a little sips just to test, test and confirm that I did dislike the taste of alcohol. But just like you dislike the taste of beer, I disliked it still today. I don't like any alcohol. You name it. Uh, but how about you? Oh, no, I drink. I'm, I'm not much of a beer drinker, but I drink whiskey and spirits sometimes. So it, it, it didn't cure me of, of alcohol proclivities. Okay, now let's move on to your other childhood story, your mom's alabaster elephant. Yeah, well, actually, that's my Aunt Linda's alabaster elephant. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was your mom's. Yeah, no, that I that I write about in uh, in my book Souvenir, uh, and I right. And by the way, let me plug your book for a second. Just that Souvenir is your latest book. You also wrote Marco Polo didn't go there, uh, vagabonding, as I mentioned at the beginning. But your latest book is Souvenir, and it just came out in, uh, very recently. So go ahead and tell me about that alabaster elephant from your aunt. Yeah, well, I cover a lot of bases in the book. You know, over the course really of 4,000 years of history and how people have perceived souvenirs and sort of the psychology behind the collection of souvenirs and the economics. And uh, I tell a lot of memoiristic stories as well. Uh, and one thing I talk about towards the end of the book is when my Aunt Linda died in late 2015, I was at one point invited to her house to um, take things, you know, ephemera from her life that, that the rest of her family, her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren hadn't wanted. And I ended up taking this alabaster elephant uh, from the collection that was clearly a souvenir that she had collected for some reason. And um, the more I thought about that alabaster elephant, the more I realized that I would never really know what it meant. Like, to me, it's just this narrative cipher. It's this thing that reminds me of my Aunt Linda. Um, but all of the energy that went into her possessions, I guess there's sort of this memento mori to our souvenirs, is that the stories that they tell ourselves sort of end when we go away. And it, one, another thing that I found when I was collecting the elephant was a scrapbook of, of my Aunt Linda with her high school friends. And they were obviously, mm. obviously sort of these cute popular girls. And as far as I know, you know, all of them are now deceased. Uh, and so there's this real 16-year-old girl exuberance from the 1940s that you see in that picture. But even if I was able to track down their grandchildren and great-grandchildren, they would have no reference to it. So it sort of tied a ribbon on, on the narrative that, of that book in a sense that 
souvenirs, and I, I don't know what your relationship to souvenirs is, and I know that you, you've been traveling full-time in Africa for a long time. Maybe you don't have room in your life for souvenirs, but um, it, it's so personalized that there is, at the end of the day, there is no real objective meaning for souvenirs, that the personal meaning is more powerful. And uh, in the book, I also talk about how when Neil Armstrong died, they found a bunch of workaday ephemera from the Apollo 11 mission, um, waist tethers and, and wrenches and stuff that for all the millions of words that were written about Apollo 11, about the moon landing, uh, these little items told a story to Neil Armstrong that resonated at a personal level that would never resonate at an official level. So somehow this this uh, alabaster elephant that I have from my Aunt Linda sort of represents the unknowability of personal experience, you know, once once you've passed on. So there's this this there's this real live while you can energy to uh, souvenirs. Yeah, and interesting that you mentioned uh, Neil Armstrong because you and I missed the landing by one year, and uh, it brings up to mind your father uh, because Neil Armstrong, of course, astronaut, and your father was a science teacher. How did that impact you? Well, I think um, he was. Uh, a science teacher, but specifically uh, a biologist. I mean, he taught all kinds of science, but, um, uh, and he also was an environmental educator. And so I spent a lot of my youth traveling around in Kansas uh, while he went off on, on various, he, he was assembling, he never finished it, but it was a, like a guide to the natural history of Kansas. Um, and so at, at a very local level, it instilled a curiosity about my environment and a love for travel, even if it was only 50 miles away from our house. Um, and, you know, I remember I remember uh, him, like, walking his fingers across the, the table when we were little kids, and he's here, it's two fingers, what is it? And it's like, oh, it's a bipod, um, you know, or a biped. What, what is this? It's a tripod, a tripod. And so, uh, basically, he just, he just, and my mom, too, my mom's an educator as well, they, they just sort of in, integrated learning and curiosity into the worldview for me and my sister. And even though it wasn't really travel specific, and even though they didn't really have passports or renewed passports until I had moved overseas and invited them to come see me, um, that attitude, I think, just of curiosity, be it scientific or poetic curiosity, uh, influenced my worldview. Right. And did what else influenced your worldview as far as, let's say, your interest in rock climbing and hiking? Was that because I know at some point you lived next to Mount Hood in Oregon. And was it there where you kind of got into rock climbing and hiking? Actually, it was before when I was when I was living in Oregon, I was actually on the track and cross country team in college, and I wasn't allowed to do much mountaineering or rock climbing. I did a little illegally. My coach would have never. Sorry, Coach Cook, wherever you are. Um, <laughs> But when I was younger, I was um, I was a counselor at uh, oh sort of a interdenominational Christian camp in uh, the Front Range of the Colorado Rockies. I'd actually been a uh, actually this this shows up in the book too because when I was younger, I was a camper at that camp, uh, and one of the things that the the young boys do when they're about fifteen is hike several days through the forest in the Front Range and and visit this plane crash. And I had actually taken a little a fuse box from the plane crash and then later felt guilty about it and took it back to the plane crash about four years later. Um, but it was during that time, uh, when I was 18, 19 years old that I started rock climbing. I started mountaineering, uh, and Colorado among mountaineering nerds is famous for its 14,000 foot peaks. Uh, and so you, you sort of try to collect 14,000 peaks. And I think I climbed 13 of them in 13, 14ers wow. in the summer of 1990. Um, 
and that was mostly on weekends because I was I was working you know at this summer camp during the days and then uh, my time off it was a very pure time of life because I was literally hiking I was in the backcountry all the time with teenagers and on my days off I would jump in a car race off and climb four, 14,000 foot mountains and so again before I ever had a passport uh, the outdoors and adventure and and just sort of physical um, adventures uh, were a part of my life and a part of my way of being in the world. And speaking about physical adventures, how do you, because you have this running background and track experience, when you travel, especially for extended periods of time, how do you stay in shape? What's your secret? Or especially if you're locked up in New York City and, you know, if they don't have a gym at the, your exercise routine, if you will. Yeah, no, if you average it out, I mean, on an average travel day, sometimes when I travel and I'm stationary, I'll, I'll go running. I mean, I'm an old track and field guy, so I have running shoes and I'll run wherever I am. Although oftentimes when I'm traveling steadily, just walking every day, just getting outside and, and just sort of spending my day on foot sort of uh, absolves the need to go for a, for a, for a run. I remember I, when I was writing Vagabond in my first book, I was in Thailand and I was pretty stationary. So I had a little route that I would run every day and I sort of got used to seeing the same runners uh, at the same time of day, but then also calisthenics. Um, I actually, at home in Kansas, uh, where I am not, I don't return to a whole heck of a lot, but I go, I spend a decent portion of the year there. I have weights in my barn, but I don't usually have access to weights. So I just do calisthenics, push-ups, uh, crunches. Every day? About every other day. And sometimes I get, I get, uh, get lazy or, or busy and, and I don't do it that regularly. But at Ideally, I alternate, you know, I maybe three days a week calisthenics or weights, depending on where I am, and then three days a week uh, running, and then as much walking as possible. So, um, I'm not I'm not super consistent, but in a sense, I don't really feel right unless I've been exercising. My body just sort of feels out of out of alignment, uh, and so that if if I fail in discipline, then just feeling bad um, compels me to exercise more regularly. You're right. Now we'll shift over to your souvenir book, and uh, I don't. Uh, vous parlez français un peu? Uh, not really, not really. Sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay, but uh, but you know that souvenir is both a verb and a noun in French. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Um, um, this tied in with memory, you know, or, or bringing oneself back to oneself. How many languages do you speak? I'm fluent in. Three, French, Spanish, and English. I, I can get mm -hmm. by in Italian and Portuguese fairly well because of that. And I, mm. uh, so I'm con conversant, if you will, kind of. In and then I'm, I'm pretty incompetent at a few other languages like Russian, I, I, like an, I, and, and Arabic. I, I can say a few words, but I'm not. I'm learning those languages. I'm not great at those. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I teach a class in Paris every summer, but I teach it in English, and I'm writing in English. It's 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 a strangely bad time to to practice your French. And it's funny. I had some Korean students last year, and um, I realized that my Korean years after leaving Korea is better than my French, especially when <laughs> I've been drinking soju. Uh, and so so it's it's funny how that works. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so souvenir uh, is tied into to memory in 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 France. And in fact, if you go to cemeteries like Père Lachaise in Paris, you'll see the word souvenir on on um, tombstones sometimes, which basically is just, you know, we're remembering our, our relative, you know. Uh, and, but it, but it's, it's a noun in English, and it sort of came into common use in English around the time of industrialized travel, around the time that travel became a rarefied act and more of an industrialized middle-class task. I'm curious to, sh there's one question that kept nagging me when I was reading the souvenir book that you just wrote. 
it's that here's Ralph Potts, Mr. Vagabond, and then we jump to souvenirs. And vagabonds, to me, my instinct says, they're almost like the anti-souvenir people. Not that they hate souvenirs, but that just it's almost impossible to collect them because you're constantly moving. And you know, a vagabond, I think of somebody who collects experiences, not objects. So how do you reconcile these two different interests of yours? They seem to be kind of contradictory. And you probably, how, how do you look at it? Well, when I went into the book, I almost felt like my personal experiences with souvenirs were a chapter of my life that had ended a long time earlier. I mean, what interested me in, in, with souvenirs is that is just how ubiquitous they are. Like everywhere you go when you travel, there's souvenir vendors and, and sort of local people often see you as a mark for someone who's, who wants to buy something to take home. And in a way, the further I got into my vagabonding life, uh, the weirder souvenirs began to seem because... Um, you know, uh, local people, local vendors saw me, they just saw an American, a, a, a white guy walking around and, and, and just assumed that I wanted souvenirs like everybody else. And so the, the less I became interested in souvenirs, the, the more interesting they became, because I just sort of wondered what underpinned this phenomenon. What happened when I started writing the book is that I realized that I had lot, a lot more souvenirs than I thought. Uh, that when I walked through my house and looked at things, sometimes a souvenir might take the form of a pair of hiking boots that I wore for two years in the Middle East, and they evoke so much more than anything I could have bought while I was in the Middle East. Um, sometimes they're, they're little, little placeholder souvenirs, like I bought some fairly cheap souvenirs when I was in Australia about 13 years ago, but that was right when I got my house in Kansas, and so um, I think I bought them just out of the thrill of having a wall where they could hang. Uh, and the more I looked, like one, I, I went down the Mekong River in a, in a riverboat with a couple of other Americans, 800 miles. It took us three weeks. We went to the Cambodian border. And I saved a souvenir. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a boat propeller as a souvenir, uh, just sort of a, a busted up one. And that's on my wall. And so I think, you know, that's not the sort of thing that you would buy at a market. It's just I wanted to keep a little bit of this adventure that seemed extraordinary at the time. And so what happened is, is uh, I thought I had stopped collecting souvenirs, but in a way I hadn't. Uh, that that there, there's still ways that we mark memory with things, uh, even if even if they are, um, you know, I guess it could be extended to a friendship or a photograph or or, or small subtle ways that we use, or even uh, maybe an email, even. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I was just I I do a podcast. Um, a deviate podcast, which isn't about travel, it's about all kinds of things. And I was interviewing a guy yesterday about, about cassette tapes and how sometimes just a throwaway afternoon, maybe 20 years ago, you record yourself on cassette tape. Gosh, it's probably more than 20 years. 30 years ago, cassette tapes were more ubiquitous. And then suddenly it's a souvenir of this moment in time. It just seems like this, this, time, this time capsule from a different time in life. And so, yeah, you know, th there's times... Where, where I'll go into my mudroom where I sort of keep some old work clothes and I'll see this old track shirt that I wore for, for two years in Southeast Asia when I was vagabonding through the continent and not collecting things. But that's as, as evocative of a souvenir as anything, this shirt that I wore every three days for, for two years while I was not uh, setting out to collect souvenirs. So it's it, it's interesting and it's complex and it's and it's really tied into how we structure memories and how associations, be they from a gift shop or from something that we wore on our feet for a year uh, can call forth memories in, in unexpected ways. It's interesting you also brought up that shirt analogy because I was just thinking to myself, you taught English courses at, uh, or writing courses at Yale University. 
Yeah, for a couple of years, 2013 and 2014. Right. And so my question is, is that how do you feel, should anybody be allowed to wear a Yale sweater? Or, uh, you know, does it bother you to see some guy who obviously <laughs> didn't go to Yale, like some bum on the street wearing a Yale hat? Um, I guess because I wasn't an undergrad, um, it, it doesn't bother me. I mean, it's, it's almost like seeing someone wearing a Yankees hat in Mongolia. Uh, and it just, or, uh, and Harvard is the same way. I, I think any of the hype Ivy League schools have sort of become a brand. They're just an evocation of, of an American brand. Well, that's the thing is that, see, I went to Harvard Business School. And so when uh-huh. I see somebody walking around Boston, let's say, or anywhere in the world, and I say, oh, you went to Harvard because you got the Harvard hat or whatever. Oh, no, no, no. I just bought it at the store or whatever. I'm like, wait a second. I worked really hard to get that damn degree. <laughs> and you're, and right. somebody just gets that ownership. I was just thinking about the same thing with, let's say, you could have a t-shirt that says, you know, I went on the Hajj, you know, the, Mil- the Namekan uh, pilgrimage for more Muslims. That's a big deal to go on the Hajj. Imagine if I buy a t-shirt that says, I went on the Hajj, or I went on El Camino de Santiago de Compostela. You know, that's another big deal. I hiked it, and yet you just buy the t-shirt, and you all of a sudden get membership to the club. I remember reading uh, No Easy Day by, I can't remember the Navy SEAL who wrote No Easy Day, but he was, he wrote, he says that the Navy SEALs despise when somebody who's not a Navy SEAL wears the trident or which symbolizes the SEALs or a, a SEAL t-shirt. It's really uncool. And he did it when he was a teenager and he learned later that that was not the thing to do. So to me, I guess going back to your souvenirs, um, ideas that are there certain souvenirs that some people see as kind of like you have to earn the souvenir. You actually have to do the task before you can wear that souvenir. Well, yes and no. I mean, we're living in this postmodern time where you can just go online and order that Eiffel Tower tchotchke without ever leaving Idaho or wherever it is you live. Uh, and so the, the, the old pre-modern or pre-modernity idea that uh, souvenirs are something you bring back from a faraway place to prove that you've been there is no longer is no longer a same thing because online commerce means, I mean, you, you even talk about military signifiers. I mean, you can go on eBay and buy things from presumably Saddam's palace. Um, you can buy all sorts of military ephemera, uh, and, and sort of build a persona around objects that you have no relationship to. So you can sort of understand the frustration of a Harvard business grad or, or a Navy SEAL or, or other people who are, um, trying to contend with this. In a way, it's sort of out of the control of the of the Navy SEAL or the Harvard business person. It's just the condition that we're at. And as long as as long as Harvard or the Navy SEALs are idealized, then people are going to sort of want to to mimic them in a in a way. Or sort of again, it, it's almost like a fandom relationship where you where you wear that Yankees hat even though you're from Argentina because it's just that's a team that wins all the time. It's like wearing a Manchester United shirt if you live in Thailand. But I in the book I right. talk about authenticity and how um how complicated that can be especially as travelers because travelers are different than than uh Harvard grads or Navy SEALs and there's no it's sort of an ambiguous thing. You can there's people who've traveled for a week and call themselves travelers and there's people who travel for 10 years and call themselves travelers. Yet you're you don't really belong to any of the societies that you're in. It sounds like you've been in Cameroon for a while, but still you're you're an outsider and you could be there for 10 year, more years and you're still an outsider. And so this is actually a conversation among travelers is that and and actually scholars have supported this that first-time travelers go out and they will 
buy the tchotchkes. They'll buy just the shot glasses or whatever that, that prove that they've been to a place. And the more you travel, the more travelers tend to be interested in expressions of authentic culture, be they local handicrafts or maybe something that was shared by a local host that has, has a, a, a personal meaning. Uh, but even then, it, it becomes complicated because the the uh, the old tradition of hospitality is tied in with the tourism industry right now, um, and so I think I, I think um, you know sort of the the Buddhist uh, concept of non attachment to things like that is probably the best solution because at the at the end of the at the end of the day, I think people who have no association with Harvard are going to buy Harvard stuff, and people with no uh, association to Navy SEALs are going to buy Navy SEAL stuff just because it seems cool. Uh, and, and so you might find somebody who, I mean, you might go, um, you know, buy some tribal artifact from Cameroon and that reflects a very important experience in your life, bring it home and then realize that somebody, um, bought the same artifact in the airport on the way home after being there for, for two years on a business or two days on a business consulting trip. And what I concluded in the book is that the authenticity expressed is more of a personal authenticity. That at the end of the day, that there is no real objective authenticity to these to these things, uh, especially in a globalized marketplace. And so, if that artifact uh, is a signifier of, of deep and important and si significant meaning to you, then that's where the authenticity lies, and it's it's anthropolo anthropological authenticity, or or it's anthropology in regard to what's being sold at the airport doesn't matter because it's about an experience that was personal. I mean, that even goes back to my aunt's alabaster elephant that, that again, despite the objective meanings we ascribe to things, um, uh, it, it becomes personal in, in the end, you know, and so, and, and so like the person in China wearing a Harvard sweatshirt uh, may have got it just because they traveled to America once. And the metaphor is not specific to Harvard. It's just specific to this faraway place and to certain ideas of excellence. So it's, a con it's an interesting concept, and you could probably write an entire book about the concept of authenticity and travel. Yeah. Well, I, I, mean, I mean, you can strip out authenticity from souvenirs and just <laughs> talk about how we struggle with with notions of authenticity in the 21st century. Yeah, and it's and by the way, I'm not a, a Harvard snob because I, I don't even I didn't even go to the graduation ceremony. I told them to send me the diploma because I was kind of in a hurry and I didn't want to stick around a couple of weeks for the ceremony. And I didn't even display it in my house. It's still wrapped up in a little tube sitting down there. So it's not like some guy's really proud and they like to put it all over and say, look, I went to Harvard. I'm like, no, I don't have any shirts or anything that shows Harvard. But it's but it is funny that even though I, I don't advertise it, I on my body or even in my house but when I see somebody advertising it I just assume okay well you must have got a hurt and it, and it doesn't happen and there's another gray area you talk about you know the eBay thing where you can buy any souvenir over eBay effectively but then there's also the ambiguity that rises rises let's say I you've never been to San Francisco let's say and I give you a, a magnet of the Golden Gate Bridge and then you say oh this is Francis gave me this nice little magnet I put it on my refrigerator in Kansas and then Somebody walks into your house, say, "Hey, you went to see the Golden Gate Bridge?" Actually, I never did. It was it was a gift from Francis, and so uh, it, there's some sort of meaning that you you take a souvenir and it becomes your souvenir. Yeah, and, and I think oftentimes these souvenirs point towards relationships too. That it's that that San Francisco magnet, even if you bought it for yourself in San Francisco, uh, you know, it's tied into uh, your experiences there and the relationships that you made there and who you were with when you bought it. Although, interestingly enough, I, I just Back in Kansas, I have a Seattle uh, magnet on my fridge, and I'm not really sure anymore who gave it to me. I think maybe maybe my <laughs> sister. And so it's 
it's one of those things. And another thing I touch on in the book is that souvenirs have different different resonance over time. That sometimes uh, what might feel like a trophy of accomplishment, you know, like I crossed an ocean, I traveled with my passport the first time, you buy a souvenir, you hang it on your wall, you put it on your shelf. Then 10 years later, you've been to, you know, 30 countries, 60 countries, and that, that accomplishment it's not like it's diminished, but it's just less important in the overall scope of your way of being in the world. And so maybe that ends up in a box in your closet or, or there's other souvenirs or other signifiers that remind you not just of your travels, but who you are and, and, and how you're navigating the world. And, and, and so it's funny, like there is no static or objective way that these souvenirs, these objects operate in, in our lives um, because they change with time as we change as people. And as we maybe don't have a place to live, and as we do have a place to live, it's 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 interesting to think about. And in, fa in fact, I've talked to a lot of people since the book has come out, and they're here. Yeah, I'm not really into souvenirs. And then I'll talk. We'll talk about it for 30 minutes, and then they'll realize that actually um, they haven't thought about souvenirs in a while. But souvenirs have had a stronger role in their travels and their memories than they thought when they first started talking. And about that it. probably and that happened to me to a certain extent. I don't consider myself any kind of a quote unquote materialist. And yet uh, I realize after reading your book, I'm like, huh, actually I do. There's a little bit of that inside me as well. And talk a little bit about the associational meaning behind photography versus souvenir. Sure. Well, photography, um, actually this ties into the conversation I was having yesterday about cassette tapes is that certain ways of being in the world have become non-material. They become information. Now you, now you can buy your favorite pop song as a sound file or download it, uh, whereas before you passed it from friend to friend uh, via cassette tapes or people from a certain generation, people from our generation who were born in the 70s or 80s or even the 60s. Uh, and so photos are, are a similar thing. Now, even when photos were objects, even when they were these things that you shot on film and got back from the from the photo development lab, um, they are souvenirs, but they're a little bit different than other object souvenirs in that they point something that is direct information. It's like, well, this is a picture of this mountain, or this is me and my friends uh, in front of this monument in Europe. And so while photos can be associational, like you may see yourself standing in front of the Colosseum with a couple of friends you made on, a, on your journey, and that calls forth associations, it's also very specific information, whereas other types of object souvenirs, you know, the rock you picked up at the at, at the Colosseum, uh, it doesn't, you can't hold up that rock and say, look, the Colosseum, like you can with a photo. Um, it is a much more personalized and, and internalized meaning. And so um, that was an interesting thing that I came across. I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time on, on photographs just because photographs have, have changed over the years to sort of archive digital data where they, as they used to be stacks of, of physical objects but even even when they were um, they're things that are not quite as fully associational as these other souvenir type objects like even down to the t-shirts and, and and boots and tchotchkes that you pick up that call forth stories that really you can only see did you pick up any souvenirs when you hiked across the desert without much water tell us about that story and if you got any souvenirs out of that experience yeah well um, this is something that I ended up writing about for Salon and it ended up being in my book, uh, Marco Polo Didn't Go There, where I was just, I wanted to hike in the Libyan desert of, of um, Western Egypt, Southwestern Egypt, just to feel sort of lost in a sandscape. There's the Great Sand Sea down there where it's just dunes to the horizon. 
And so I just sort of um, hiked by myself there. Uh, well, actually, I started with a friend. And in fact, the cover, the photo on the cover of Vagabonding is from that experience, my German friend Tom. But then he turned back. And uh, as I was hiking through the desert, one thing that I found there are these bullets um, where apparently Egyptians were hunting, I guess. I don't know, or they were just shooting their guns off. And so there's just like a discharged... AK-47 bullet that I found in the desert. And I was so taken with it that I picked it up thinking that I might make it into a pendant or something. Then over the course of the next hour, I found like half a dozen, a dozen more of them. And suddenly it seemed less cool. You know, that sort of, that weird meaning inflation that happens when you're, when, when something that seems dear and full of meaning suddenly becomes common. Supply and demand, scarcity. Yeah. And so I ended up keeping none of them, right? And now in retrospect, I, I, it would have been fun to keep one. Uh, but that you didn't even keep your water. Well, yeah, well, yeah. That's a that was a <laughs> that that's how that ended up being a story in the book is that I I was just I I got comfortable enough in the desert that um, I had a bunch of bottles stuffed inside. In fact, they were probably stuffed inside my pack on that picture you see on the cover of Vagabonding. At some point, I threw my pack down, sat on it, and and basically the bulk of my water supply burst, soaking my clothes. I wrung everything out, realizing, you know, forgetting that I was in this classic uh, Saharan-style desert. <clears throat> and so what I had to do is just sort of a survival 101 thing, which is where I just waited for the day to end. And then I hiked due east uh, to the nearest paved road, which I knew was on the map. Um, and I probably, God, I forget how long I hiked now, maybe 10 hours or something. I hiked through the night. Got to the road and hitchhiked home. Uh, in retrospect, it's 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 easy to talk about it in a glib way, but it was a very nerve-wracking experience that I had just stupidly, you know, squandered my water and and sort of had to to um, aquavac, not medevac, but aquavac myself out, out of the desert, uh, and then you know just the specter of a a pasty freckled American standing on the side of the road got me a a, a free trip uh, back to civilization. And so it makes a good story. I wouldn't I wouldn't advise it. But it makes a good story. And uh, I have no souvenirs except the story itself. Now, speaking about North Africa, let's talk a little bit about the Muslims. I'm just curious, this is going to be a tricky question, whether you think Muslims are less obsessed about souvenirs. And I'll break that down a little bit in case that's not obvious. Um, now, idols are objects that we've imbued with meaning. And we revere idols. And especially if you look, I mean, one of the things that Muslims do is that they really don't idolize anything and they're very strict about it. Now, in the Bible, it says clearly you're not supposed to idolize anything, but you go to any Orthodox Christian church and there's idols all over the place. In fact, almost every single Catholic church, same thing. And so I was just curious if maybe in your investigations about souvenirs for your book, if you found out that Muslims or in your travels, let's say either in Egypt or elsewhere, that you found that they were maybe less souvenir oriented or just you found no difference at all or it's, you don't have enough data points to know? I don't know if I have enough data points. I have anecdotal, um, some anecdotal reflections. I mean, there's, it's the whole graven images thing. I think that goes back to the, to the old Jewish scriptures um, back when the pagan tribes were worshiping Baal. Uh, and somehow it didn't translate to the Orthodox tradition, maybe because it sort of integrated with other pagan traditions in that part of the world, Christianity at least. Um, and so while that never occurred to me, but it wouldn't surprise me if there are less, quote, graven images in the homes of Muslim people. But I, I know that um, during the Hajj, going way back, and uh, there's, a, there's a spring, and I forget, it starts with a Z, I forget the name of it exactly, it's in my book. Uh, and 
there was a brisk trade in souvenirs of just little little water jugs to keep to put water from the Holy Spring in this jug and, and take it home. Uh, and so I think I have no empirical data to, to underpin this, but I think that everybody likes to have some sort of memento of where they've been. And so I would suspect that uh, like the Hajj, for example, has different kinds of souvenirs. I mean, there's even the white skull cap. Doesn't the white skull cap indicate that you're a Haji? Uh, if, if not necessarily, not not necessarily. They 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 change their name. I know they called people like Al Hajj. Uh -huh. um, when you've gone on the Hajj, you know, you become like it's not just Mister Potts. It's like Al Haji Potts. Uh -huh. um, so things like that happen. But I don't know if there's. Uh, they must have some other souvenir that shows that they've done Mecca. Well, there's. I know that there's rugs. There's uh, there's handicrafts, and so. Um, were I to speculate, um, you know, it's it's probably not. They're less likely to buy, you know, a little statue that represents some place that they've been, but they might buy a vase or a rug or something like that. A magnet, or or magnet, sure, yeah. <laughs> um, and then again, I, I, you know, it's not like um, in my travels, being the home of Muslims, they seem like they have less things hanging on the wall or sitting on the shelf. Um, and so I think, in principle, there's that there's that idea of non-representational art and, and avoidance of graven images. But uh, in practice, I think that they end up enjoying little tchotchke souvenirs, little reminders, little, a, a rug from the market uh, that they went to before as much as anyone else. Do you, have, you, have you experienced otherwise? No, I, 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 I agree with you. Overall, I would say that my guess is that they are a bit less souvenir focused, but not dramatically so. And certainly, when, like you say, when it comes to like little statues, like they probably wouldn't buy, let's say, an Egyptian statue knockoff in alabaster of, that shows, let's say, the Sphinx. Maybe they would say, no, I won't buy that. But they might buy a poster of the pyramid. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, the, the art, I mean, there's these great tile traditions, these more abstract tile traditions from, from uh, Islamic art. Uh, and so I think there's, there's ways around it. Um, and so I think you're right. Uh, I, I'm, now I'm forever. I'm going to be paying attention to this now. Now that you brought it up, I, I didn't look at it specifically for the book, but now I'm going to be curious. So the next time I travel in the Muslim world, well, it, you did the opposite for me. I never thought about it until I read your book, and I was like, "Huh, uh, now I got to pay attention to that." <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, what about last question about the souvenir book? Um, what now? I'm a writer too, and I know how it is. Right when you finally say, "Okay, print," and you're finished with the article or with the book then you immediately have regrets and you start looking at it again. So what would you update or change? I know it's brand new. It just came out, but there's probably already things that you say, damn it, I should have included this or that or said this differently. Anything that comes to mind? I think I overlooked the, the extent to which workaday souvenirs are a part of our lives. Like I, I scoured my house with like cups from sports stadiums or from Mardi Gras or beer steins from Oktoberfest. Because uh, I scoured my house, you know, I did, I did reporting in Namibia and in Paris and in vendors convention in Las Vegas for the book. But I also very carefully picked over my house and I found a lot of things that I had forgotten that I had collected as souvenirs. What I didn't do was check my cabinets. And so it has been after the book has come out that I've realized that I have this wealth of associational memories because I have that... Um, that Kauffman Stadium cup from the year the Kansas City Royals won the World Series, or I have that beer stein from the Oktoberfest that I went to in Queens and that I won because I knew that Stavro Proven beer was not German but Czech. And um, these little shot glasses, you know, which I rarely use, but somehow 
became things that I bought. So it, it, it's funny how there's some souvenirs that you display or hang on walls or even put in storage, and then there's some that just become vessels through which you drink your orange juice in the morning. And I, I forgot to check those. Um, and so I think that that's at least... That's at least five pages just sort of talking about how when I open my cabinet, suddenly there's this geography of association just based on plastic and glass cups and glasses. That's amazing. Um, well, I appreciate summing that up. Now, we've gone through your childhood, gone through the souvenir book. And then the last part of this, thing, of this uh, discussion that we're having, I want to talk about the business of travel writing. In other words, the nuts and bolts. And I'll get right to the point on one issue I'm just curious about. Since you've done both articles for all sorts of high-end magazines, for you know, well-known magazines, as well as books, you've written several books, what, have you ever sat back and calculated, Roth, what, what nets you a higher hourly rate? I realize that's really hard to calculate because books, you know, you're still getting paid royalties for the vagabonding book, even though you wrote that uh, 15 years ago or so. Um, so it's hard to calculate versus an article that you wrote for the New Yorker, you know, it pays once and then it's done. You don't get royalties on that. But do you have a sense, like if you were to calculate your time, energy, payoff, that kind of stuff, do you, do you get a better bang for your buck and your time and your word for articles or for books or is it hard? Well, it depends on how well the books do. So, um, I would say if you, if you're getting paid well, you know, if you're getting paid glossy rates, which is rarer and rarer these days. Um, then you can outstrip a book for sure, you know, because you can make thousands of dollars off of a good glossy or even like a New York Times type uh, byline. Uh, although if you buy a book that is perennially successful like Vagabonding is, then there's no comparison. You know, I've, I've sat back and done pretty well from Vagabonding over the years. And of course, I, I guess that's become a part of my platform. And so it's hard to, it's hard to judge where the work has stopped for Vagabonding because I talk about it a lot. I mean, and that's led to college speaking fees and non-college speaking fees and all sorts of opportunities that are hard to, uh, to calculate. Um, and then, but then there's also this assumption that the glossy magazine article is something that is, um, sort of a, a static standard. I think that a lot of savvy travel writers, or even you, you might even call them bloggers these days, are finding ways to monetize their content and really brand themselves in such a way that they're not beholden to editorial standards. Um, and so and that's I haven't gone too far in that world. I've done some of that. I haven't monetized very much of it. Uh, but the, it really is sort of an old bricks and mortar idea that you're pitching to editors and you're getting a dollar or two dollars a word. Um, whereas some people, in the way that you might invest in a book like Vagabonding, they're investing in their special blog that might dispense a lot of travel advice, tell some stories, might sell some products, and that travel writers have, in effect, become uh, personal businesses uh, where they might parlay their blog into a, a guide service and a keynote speaking service. Um, and so it's just a lot more complicated than it was, you know, maybe in, in the 1990s when I was first starting to think about this business. Um, and so I guess my, my living comes from, through a combination of all of it. And it really depends on the year, which, which kind of income is predominant over the other. Another question I was curious about is that you've written a few short books. For example, you've got uh, Vagabonding is not that long. The, the souvenir book is 144 pages. And I am plagued by this verbal diarrhea. I write just really long books. My last book was 330,000 words, 750 pages or whatever. And I, so I really envy you. I'm like, how are you able to do this? Um, and, and yet I was 
kind of researching you and I realized that in Kurt Vonnegut would call you a basher and I'm a basher and I'm not a swooper. You're not a swooper. And basically, for those who don't know those terms, a basher is somebody who just like is a perfectionist. They can't move on to the next paragraph and, or even the next sentence before the last paragraph is perfect and they can't versus a swooper just just writes it all out and revises, revises ad, ad infinitum. So my question to you, Ralph, is how do you, you know, manage to decide what percentage of your the raw words get cut or do you, are you just how do you decide what to cut out because you must be good at cutting things to you know be able to write some concise books i'm not good at that so i'm trying to figure out what's your secret yeah well i think i think bashers sort of bash their way into ideas you know we go one sentence at a time and by the time we've written our 30th sentence the first sentence has been rewritten six times and by the time we, we get to our 500th sentence, the first sentence has been rewritten 50 times. Uh, yep. And so, you know, uh, a book like Souvenir had a very specific, it's, pre, it's a prescribed short book. It's part of a series where, you know, it, none of the books are more than 144 pages long. Whereas Vagabonding is a book where I just sort of, I wrote it until it felt like it was done. Um, and that worked out really well for me. You know, I, I think I was 30... 30 years old when I started that and 31 when I finished. Um, and if I had tried to write that now, I might be more erudite. I might have more travel experiences to draw on, but I don't think it would work as well if it was a 400 page book instead of a 200 page book. I think sometimes, you know, the right balance is what counts. Um, and so it, weirdly enough, oftentimes my, uh, my super long stuff is not as as well received as the shorter stuff. So I think it's just about the right touch and just sort of knowing the bandwidth of your audience and when the and you know when you've made your point and can call it successful. Uh, and that was almost something that happened. I don't know if it's by accident or by intuition with vagabonding, but um, even though even though I have broader knowledge in a in a sense, there was something about just sort of that energy and excitement that went into the book um, that that light touch I think was more important than adding another hundred or 200 pages. Got it. And, and speaking about your book of uh, vagabonding, is there anything you would update there? I mean, cause you said you've had all sorts of new experiences. You wouldn't want to touch it. No, I mean, I did an update in, um, 2016, uh, and, and, um, you know, Tim Ferriss had, uh, done my, um, he produced an audio version of the book with a foreword. And so it, we, I included his foreword in the, in the print or a preface in the print edition. And, um, Oh, I updated some of the language because, like, people don't use CD-ROMs anymore. Poste restante <laughs> is not very common. Uh, there, there were just some sort of some dated uh, uh, information, and the resources was all the resources. Even though the resources were updated online, I wanted to make sure and get those into the print edition too. But uh, the content itself, I, I really didn't. I really didn't change anything. I, I think so much of what was in vagabonding was sort of philosophical stuff that hasn't really changed. The, 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 the philosophies that underpin vagabonding are, are the same. You know, the idea that you need to let your life pay out in time, wealth, and experiences is something that holds as true now as it did when I finished writing the book in 2002, 2003. What about your next book? That, that's a good question, actually. Uh, people keep asking me about that, and I'm not sure. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an idea hoarder, so I have like 10 ideas for books. Uh, and screenplays and other projects, uh, and I haven't pulled the trigger yet. Like I'm still sort of in the wash of spending time in New York promoting my, my new book. I have some travels coming up that will take me uh, back to Kansas and to the West Coast, and it'll probably be May before I can really relax and and sort of um, 
get on top of things and think about where I want to go next creatively. So I'm, I'm, that's actually an exciting prospect that I don't know yet, but I'll get to go through the process of, of deciding where I want to focus my energies. And speaking about focusing energies, I don't really understand sometimes why more successful authors like yourself don't self-publish. You know, it's kind of like if Madonna, for example, wants to put out an album or J.K. Rowling wants to write another book, she doesn't really need a publisher. You know, they don't need these... Uh, publishers anymore and you can just self-publish so easily nowadays and I'm just so surprised that people who already have a big platform and a following why they don't go down that route given the ease of self-publishing nowadays what's your what's your belief on that well I think uh you know a book like Souvenir is part of a series and I just liked it uh sometimes I joke that it's my my midlife crisis book um but it's really it was fun to be a I didn't do that for money right like I, I wrote that book just because I liked the thought experiment. I liked the exercise of the deep dive, the research of writing about souvenirs. I think if I had a more practical book, and actually one of the books on my list is more practical, um, then self-publishing is definitely something I would consider because it's a, a matter, again, just like some bloggers are able to leverage their blogs and, and tie-ins to make pretty good money, um, I think self-publishing books is a way to make more, is re really to cut out all the middlemen I mean, Ran Random House published Vagabond, and that's great. And it was a time when a platform like that was great. But at, at the end of the day, Random House has made a lot more money from Vagabonding than I have. Uh, and so if I, if I write another Vagabonding equivalent, another a very specific applied life advice type book, the chances are very strong that I would not only self-publish it, but probably transfer the savings to the reader too. You know, that I could write, if I, if I wrote a book... Um, with a lot of useful advice and was able to sell it for $6 instead of 16 and make a decent chunk of that $6, then I can just transfer the savings, you know, and just make it easier for the person to buy that book and, 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 and get that advice. So uh, again, it's something I haven't pulled the trigger on, but it's something that I will do uh, when the time is right. And, you know, there's certain projects that I would, if I did, if I did something rep memoiristic or repertorial, I would probably go with a traditional publisher. If I do something that is applied, that is involved with life advice, then there's a very strong chance that my next book that is in the vein of vagabonding will be published by me. Excellent. Uh, I look forward to that uh, next book of yours, self-published or not. Um, more importantly, the most important question is, have you taken mushrooms? Not, 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 not yet. You obviously listen to my podcast with Ari, and I, I've joked with him about that. But um, the the uh, uh, the secret plan for that is later this spring. So we'll we'll see how I do. Okay, the secret plan, as you tell everybody. Well, I don't want a bunch of people to show up uh, from my shroom fest, you know, just because just just to ogle me like a like a museum piece. But uh, yeah, no, I, I promised Ari I would do it, so that will go down sometime this spring. You know, there's two. Um... Uh, two experiences I've had with shrooms. One was in Amsterdam, and it was completely legal. It was before they banned them, I guess, in Amsterdam. And they just had a giggle fest. But the second time I took it, it was at Burning Man. And there I had a completely different experience, one of great, intense empathy. It was so strange. No laughing, no giggling, but just an insane amount of empathy. So it'll be interesting to see what flavor of mushroom and what effect it has on you. Yeah, I have no idea, but I've been reassured that it, that um, it's going to be fine. And I'm I'm doing it in a, in like a controlled and, and beautiful environment so that I can just, that I can enjoy it and add that experience to my life experiences. Well, you've added a lot to my life experiences, Rolf. Um, I, in 2001, I started the Appalachian, I did the Appalachian Trail and I decided then I was going to do vagabonding. 
And then your book came out and I kind of just reinforced my belief and, and I realized, shit, I'm not that crazy, actually. I'm not the only crazy idiot out there who likes to do this kind of nonstop travel stuff. And it kind of gives, gave me the confidence that what, to keep going down that path. And I think you've inspired me, you've inspired many people uh, to do that. And I really want to thank you that, for that because I've gone, did the Appalachian Trail, then I did the Pacific Crest Trail, then I went from Canada, then I did the Continental Divide Trail. I walked from Mexico to Canada and then back down to Mexico. And then I went vagabonding for three and a half years in Eastern Europe, wrote a book about that, then five years in Africa, all these things. Oh, yeah, I walked across Spain twice, walked uh, across uh, Madagascar. <laughs> so all these things. And I can't give you all the credit, but definitely you deserve credit for having inspired me and confirmed that uh, th these, are, these are experiences worth having. So thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm actually jealous of a lot of that stuff. You've you've outpaced me, especially in the hiking world. So it sounds like you were an early adopter. If you got it, if you got the book in the early 2000s, um, it must have been pretty new. Yeah, I think it was 2000. Because see, I didn't. I my first trip to Eastern Europe was 2004, and I think it was already out by then, if I if I remember mm -hmm. correctly, or maybe because I did the Pacific Crest Trail in 2006, and then and then I did the okay. Continental Divide Trail in 2007. That was a yo-yo a round trip thing. Um, but yeah, there was those, it, it was just nice to read about it and like, okay, somebody else gets it. It's not just me out there. And I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast might be in a similar boat. They may either be before they pull the trigger or they've just pulled the trigger and they're still a little bit insecure about what they're doing and about their job situation and whatever. And this kind of gave me the courage to just let it all out. And, and since 2006, I worked for Microsoft in 2006. That was my last honest job. And since then, I've just been going nonstop. And one of the things I struggle with personally is just the, the dilemma between, you know, how much time to spend promoting and writing and stuff like that versus just continuing to travel. And I don't know, you must struggle with that too, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and that's why I'm jealous of your travels uh, right now, that you're in Cameroon and I'm in New York. I love New York, but there's something <laughs> sort of more awesome sounding about uh, Cameroon. And, and so, so it's that, it's that trade-off. You know, I've been doing a lot of writing, a lot of book promotion. Uh, I've done teaching. You know, I have you know, my, my Yale years um, happens after all of my vagabonding stuff. And so, but yet those are, that's an important and meaningful time of my life too. So, um, uh, yeah, it is a trade-off, and I, I think it's it's just good to to acknowledge that the the blessing of having those sorts of options. You know, should I should I sit in my in my in the house that I love and write another book, or should I go travel the world? And so exactly, that's the challenge. <laughs> and that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question then go to wanderlearn.com and click on the latest episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F. Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F. Tapon is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. Here's one last reason to remember F. Tapon. If you like what I do and want to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash, yep, you guessed it, F. Tapon. That's where you can pick up some sweet rewards for as little as $1 a month. And remember, subscribing to the WanderLearn podcast helps, but downloading each episode helps even more. Please share the podcast, review it, and sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. This show was edited by Rejoice Tapon. The music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon, encouraging you to wander and learn.